Constructionist Radio presents The War Room, where we discuss tactics for strategic Christian living. I'm in Paws River, North Carolina. On the phone with me are Jay Rogers from Kissimmee, Florida, and John Andrew Reasoner from Norman, Oklahoma. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. John Andrew Reasoner is, has been doing a lot of writing. He's a, a very thoughtful, smart brother who really right in the middle of abolition uh, of abortion movement here in, in recent years. And is a Reconstructionist. Jay was involved in Operation Rescue, has a, perhaps a slightly different take on recent events, Operation Save America's recent intervention slash event in Louisville. Jay, from the standpoint of being involved in Operation Rescue, where they saw there was movement, things happened. So I wanted to give both of these brothers a chance to, to basically give their perspective in some of you probably you may have, if not, I would encourage you to read their posts on Facebook. We can give both of the both of them a chance to link to tell you how to link to those. Jay, you've been in contact with Kendra uh, Thomas. You had some some prior knowledge, uh, some maybe some discussion or counseling about what they were about to do. I know that Rusty and Kendra both joined us on our prayer line on Thursday night, right before they went to Louisville, and Rusty prayed with us, and we prayed for him, and Satan, the man knows how to pray. But would, would you give your take on intervention, interposition through rescue-type exercises where they're, they are engaged in civil disobedience, obviously because of the Faith Act? What can happen locally, or what your experience has been with that, your perspective on it? And I'd like to give John a, a chance to, to respond in, in kind from from the position where the brothers today are saying it. Yeah, well, just let me give a little bit of background first, because I think that's helpful. Okay, so I have been a Christian for, for about two years or so, and this was back in the 1980s. I considered myself to be pro-life. I attended a prayer gathering in Washington, D.C. It was called Washington for Jesus, 1988. And one of the speakers was Melody Green, who is the, the widow of Keith Green, who I really uh, admired quite a bit. So I was very interested in, in seeing what she had to say, and I was kind of surprised that her entire message was on abortion. And her point was, um, you know, how many of you out there would say that you were pro-life? And nearly everyone raised their hands. And then she said, well, what, how many of you have actually done something to end abortion? besides vote, sign a petition, or whatever. And I looked around me, and I saw very few people had their hands up. And I was one of the ones that didn't have their hands up. So right then I prayed that, you know, as soon as God would show me what to do, I would do it. Within a few months, people in my church were involved with Operation Rescue. And I thought, well, maybe this is it. But I didn't know if I would want to do something as radical as getting arrested. Um, and I can remember um, something very strange that happened was I prayed that if God wanted me to go to a rescue and risk arrest, that he would make it very clear to me that that's what I was supposed to do. So I went to a rally, uh, listened to the speakers, heard the philosophy behind it, and I prayed. I said, you know, God, if 
first of all, I'm not a morning person. I don't like to get up early in the morning to do anything. So I said, you know, make it easy for me to get to the place. And when they announced the um, the meeting place, they said, we're meeting at St. Bridget's in Framingham, Massachusetts. And I realized that you, you could actually see St. Bridget's from my front yard. So I just was kind of floored by that, that God would answer that kind of a prayer, you know. So I, I went to the early morning meeting. We left, we did a rescue, and I ended up in jail for three days. And it was a, a life-transforming experience. Uh, people talk about the presence of God. Some people have these really spiritual experiences in jail. I was one of those. And I, one of the things that happened to me in jail is I was forced to fellowship with a lot of Christians who were not uh, charismatic Pentecostal like me. I ran into a guy who was Presbyterian, who was a chain smoker. Um, in New England, you know, mainline Protestant churches are dead. They're not, we didn't consider them Christians, but I realized this guy was, was a brother in Christ. Um, I had very little time for, you know, considering Catholics to be Christians either, but I met Catholics who I felt were. These people are sincerely um, loving God. You know, I don't agree with them on a lot of things, but it really changed a lot of my prejudices. Uh, towards other Christians. And also I felt at that moment that God was calling me to do something full-time for him. I didn't know what it was, if it was going to be full-time rescue or what. When I went back to my school, I actually lived at a boarding school uh, that I worked at, there was a letter in my mailbox inviting me to join a ministry in Florida. And they'd read my articles that I'd written. And that was kind of like my dream was to be a writer and you know, write full-time and actually get paid for it. And I had, so it was just like an amazing uh, set of circumstances where God altered my life. Many other people that I know that were arrested, they had their life altered too. There's a friend of mine named Gavin Quill. He actually interned with a Supreme Court justice in Iowa that was responsible for making same-sex marriage legal. And now he's very involved with... Um, you know, as a lawyer, he's involved with, you know, civil rights cases, uh, refugees from other countries. So he, he became a social activist legally because he was kind of involved with Operation Rescue. Left a, you know, left a very high-paying job to get into that kind of thing. So I just met people, you know, there have been so many people that I've known that because of their involvement with the rescue, they got involved with a lot of other things. I would never say to someone that you need to rescue. I, I consider the rescue movement actually to be dead. I don't think that it's something that can be resurrected. But one thing that it did was it got people involved that were not involved. Um, the way I see the current rescue to happen in Kentucky is the same thing. It's Rusty is interested in getting the church to wake up, to realize that we as individuals need to interpose and then calling the lawmakers who call themselves pro-life but don't do that much to nullify Roe, to realize we don't have to overturn Roe, that we can nullify it. Um, we actually saw an example of that in Melbourne, Florida. I lived in a house across the street from an abortion mill in Melbourne, Florida. The house was originally bought by Operation Rescue National Director Keith Tusi. I bought it from him when he was moving out of Melbourne. And the reason why we had the house was because there was a buffer zone saying that Christians, literally it said Christians could not preach, pray, or protest on the sidewalk or even 100 feet away from the abortion mill. 
So the house, the property provides some proximity. We challenge the injunction. We risk arrest. Um, one case involving the injunction went all the way to the Supreme Court. We lost. And then finally we won. We had the Supreme Court was against us. Uh, the injunction was in effect. But, you know, God's sovereign. We, we kept going after uh, the injunction. We kept challenging it. And finally, the state prosecutors uh, brought evidence against my roommate, um, Graham Dugas, and he very cleverly won a case by crossing over into the buffer zone and mailing a letter in our mailbox, because our mailbox was actually in the buffer zone. So the court decided it was so ridiculous to, to arrest someone for mailing a letter that they didn't press charges. And after that, the state, for some inexplicable reason, some inexplicable reason, they just stopped arrest. They stopped bringing charges against people that were arrested. The city council ordered the police stop arresting people. They're not being prosecuted. Why? Do, why would you arrest people that aren't being prosecuted? So we get the sidewalk back. From there, we are, we we elected three city councilmen in Melbourne. These were all people that had been in front of the abortion mill. Two of them had been arrested, and they got to have a big effect on this um, this seven member uh, panel. And eventually, the, the abortion mill is forced to close. Another one opens. You know, Christians followed them there, went to the sidewalk, and it was forced to move twice. Finally, it closed for good. So we didn't end abortion in America, but we did end it in our time. And so I think that this is an example of interposition and nullification on the local level. This can be done any, anywhere. It can be done statewide. It can be done nationwide. And it's just a matter of Christians believing that we serve a supreme being that's greater than the Supreme Court. Do you believe that the type of activity that was successful there in Melbourne, do you think that that would shake out the same way today in virtue of the FACE Act? Well, we did this during the FACE Act. We were not blocking access. See, what happens is this. They passed a law saying you can't block an entrance. Then they passed another law saying you can't, preach, pray, or picket within 100 feet of the abortion mill. Then we go to their, we went to the um, Planned Parenthood CEO's neighborhood, for instance, in Orlando. The city of Winter Park passed an ordinance saying we couldn't do that. So we went and challenged that, and we won that. You know, it's like we, we have to keep going and demanding, demanding justice. You can resist. We're not resisting. Excuse me, we're not doing civil disobedience. We're we're resisting ungodly law. We're obeying God biblically. We're practicing biblical obedience. You know, I don't blame people that are against this. I have some very good friends that are against what I've done. It, it doesn't bother me personally. Uh, I know I'm doing the will of God. But I'm disappointed in people that need to, you know, come out and they say. Because in my experience, you know, there's a lot of things that I've seen, I've seen Christians do that I disagree with. But then I've seen God use them, too. Like I said, God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. And, you know, we're all crooked sticks. Um, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to – it doesn't mean we shouldn't try to be straight sticks, but God is going to use someone, and you never know what God's going to use. Okay. John, speaking for young abolitionists who've been engaged in planning in, in, in Russell, I've got nothing but praise for Russell and uh, – you know, he's a, I think he's a strategic genius and a heck of an artist and a brilliant thinker, tactician. 
uh, and I know that you've been close, and that you've also been doing a lot of writing uh, that represents not just Reconstructionists, but specifically uh, this issue here. I read an, an article, and I thought it was well done. Uh, you want to, for our audience, just want to sort of uh, not necessarily respond to what Jay had to say, or if you want to pose your your uh, your points your ex, in your expose or your critique, if you want to craft those in a response. I'd like to hear your perspective, uh, both on what what happened in Louisville from uh, from an abolition from a, a current modern day abolitionist perspective, and also if you have any response to Jay. Yeah, sure. Um, well, first of all, it would be probably best to make the distinction between rescue in general or rescue as a concept um, in this particular act, because I'm in favor of rescue as a concept and interposition as a concept. And I think a lot of what happened in the 80s and 90s and uh, during the, the large rescue movement was justified and I would say even uh, at least somewhat effective in, in certain areas. And I think it did light a fire under a lot of people and um, had a lot of good. Obviously, it didn't abolish abortion, but I, I can't discredit a lot of the faithful Christians back then for doing that, and more would I say what they did was simple. Now, my, my position on uh, the Louisville rescue is that I just am not convinced that it was a wise decision. I'm not calling it sin, and I'm, I'm also not going to say that it was wrong because it was breaking laws. I don't think they're just flaws in the first place, so I'm not going to rely upon that. Uh, my perspective is more based on it not being the right time, not having the resources and manpower available to effectively rescue, and I think that is put into a very plain and, uh, how to put this, obvious perspective whenever you consider, you know, just using a back door in an abortion clinic instead of the front door and how easy it is to circumvent the rescue. Um, and that kind of leads to the question, is it even a rescue if someone can just walk around the building? So that, that would be my criticism of the, the recent rescue, though. I'm largely in favor of a lot of the historic rescues. John? Logically. Yes, sir. I know that, that uh, abolitionists have been roundly criticized for their church repent campaign. Does it, does it seem that perhaps really what this was, in a manner of speaking, was really more like a church repent event than it was really a rescue event. I mean, obviously, if they could dissuade a mother, fine. There may have been there were reports, presumably from the Zastros, that there was a child saved, and, and that's significant. Um, but does it seem that really it was more of a? And I don't mean to say I, I wouldn't use the word stunt, but it was. It did have more of the look of a media event that was really, in effect, sort of a a a, uh, a poke in the eye of the church itself, almost like it was a church repent. Uh, and I want to say, you can, use, you can use words like, like stunt, and I think that has a very negative connotation, so I don't, I don't prefer yeah. that sort of term, because there's really nothing wrong with bringing light to a particular situation. One of the two modes of abolition is agitation, and I would dare say getting arrested in front of a abortion clinic is rather agitating and it you know, puts a public spotlight on what you're doing and what you're saying. So bravo on that. What I would say, though, is that if there's not interposition going on in, in the sense that 
is not actually blocking the way, then I then we shouldn't call it rescue. We should call it preaching the gospel of the abortion clinic and someone heard the gospel. They were definitely bringing the gospel. They were definitely bringing the gospel into uh, opposition. Sure. Uh, so they were doing at least that much. Oh yeah, and, and and if we want to talk about it in that way, then we can say that every time an abolitionist or you know a good conservative pro-lifer is preaching the gospel at an abortion <coughs> clinic, that would be called rescuing or interposition. But we, you know, if we're talking about specifically blocking abortion clinic entrances so that women cannot go in to kill their babies. That's not what happened. Right. Just by definition, right. that's not what happened. And, and that was clearly that was clearly one of the primary, if not the primary motive, Jay, of Operation Rescue. They 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 wanted to they wanted to incapacitate clinics so that they could not operate. Yeah, I mean my first rescue I was not going to be arrested. I was going to observe and risk arrest. When I got to the the mill, something came over me, and I all of a sudden there was this militaristic spirit that came on me, and I was the first person at the door. And over 100 people followed me. And so we had probably close to 200 people there, most of them in front of the entrance. The one in Louisville, I, be, I believe they were able to get about a dozen people so, you know, it would have been great if the church in Louisville and people from around the country had responded in hundreds, and they could have blocked both entrances. But I think that what Keith Tucson, who was the national director, he noticed over the years that we were able to save as many babies when we simply showed up. And to me, that was the, that was the in the end, that's the thing that really stuck out to me about rescue. You show up at the place where innocent blood is being shed and allow God to change your heart, bring you to repentance, mm -hmm. and then you can be a crooked stick in God's hands. Like God is not constrained to save by many or by few. Jeff Durbin, who we love, came out originally and basically decried the whole issue of disobeying the law of trespass and whatnot. And I think that he had to sort of take a step back. I think upon consideration, I don't know whether he got any pushback or just upon further reflection or or what have you, uh, he sort of took a step back. I know Russell uh, Hunter, you know, originally, you know, issue, you know, came out with a uh, a video, and then I think he was sort of he ended up sort of taking a step back as well. And and I don't, I don't want to say eat their words because I I respect both these brothers. Then I think Matt Trahella, who came out and he wanted to point out the fact that, like Jay uh, noted in 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 Melbourne that their their interpositions, their rescues in Wisconsin involved large numbers and they were highly successful in terms of, of shutting down permanently a majority of the death mills in the state of Wisconsin. You know, whatever else it accomplished, it's been twenty years or, or more since the media has seen Christians in handcuffs. It's probably overdue. It seems to me that when we live in a wicked that when they're in a wicked culture and we're in the middle of it, surrounded by it, Probably there ought to be more pictures of Christians in handcuffs. It, it doesn't quite seem right that we should just be walking about the streets unmolested, doing our, you know, going our merry way in the midst of a sinful and perverse generation. There ought to be some sort of tension or conflict, it seems. that would, It almost seems like that would be normative. Rusty's video explaining the purpose of the rescue, I mean, he explains it fairly clearly. We're not looking to 
return to the paradigm of rescue 25 to 30 years ago. That's not the emphasis. What we want is to awaken the church and lawmakers who call themselves pro-life, right, but do nothing. Then we can end abortion without overturning Roe. Uh, Foot Benham, who is the former leader of Operation Save America, used to say this all the time. Um, we will end abortion when the church decides to end abortion, not, not a moment sooner. We can do it through interposition and nullification. I've, I've written a short series of articles explaining it more fully. Matt Trowell has written several books, I believe, on the subject. I have two of them here in my office. Um, I gave an example of how this worked in Melbourne, Florida. It can work every place in America. If Christians will stand in the gap, right? the United States Constitution allows for this, and more importantly, our Lord commands it. Yes, absolutely. And, and so in regards to seeing Christians handcuffed and, and things like that, I, I think we will see more of that. Um, I don't believe, I'm not a pessimist as far as, uh, history of the church goes, but I do think that sometimes there'll be dips and before there's uh, rises again. But I do think we are going to see more of that. We already have seen some of it. Uh, we've seen that with some street creatures. And uh, the last time I saw a friend of mine in handcuffs was due to uh, handing out pamphlets out in front of the church. So that was, there wasn't any charges, but that was the last time I saw one of my friends in handcuffs was actually in front of a conservative Baptist church. But, um, yeah, I do think we will see some persecution. I'm optimistic about the future of the gospel. I'm just not necessarily optimistic about the future of America as it's presently constituted. And many people have heard me say if uh, it, it's, it's very possible that with blood guilt, what it is, that God, uh, well, I said if the church does not end abortion, God will end America. Uh, and, and it's a question sometimes of which will come first. Will God decide to end America before the church finally gets around to ending abortion? And people say, well, why are you making this? So I, I, to me, uh, it's obviously there are many issues. And once abortion is abolished, there's going to be other uh, uh, evils. And, and, and obviously it always starts with repentance in our own heart. And we always have latent, resonant sin that, that needs to be abolished and, and rooted out of our own hearts. Uh, new sanctification. In that sense, I could say, okay, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, uh, incremental. Yes, our own sanct- personal sanctification is incremental. Aren't we all, gentlemen? Aren't we all incrementalists at least at some degree? I mean, we're not we're not going down we're not going down with D nine bulldozers and bulldozing the death the death knells down. Well, one thing I've said before is that the devil's in the ism sometimes. So it just depends on how you define things and. Um, when we're talking about incrementalism, it has to do with a call, not just what happens, but a call to action. So we don't call to act, we don't call to partial repentance, even though we know sometimes repentance takes time and that sanctification is continuous. But we don't call for that. We call for immediate and full repentance and obedience to Christ the King. Um, so that that would be the distinction I make. It's not too complicated, I hope. But yeah, there are incremental changes, but I think the ism on it puts um, a finer definition on it that has well, to do with a particular call. You know, Russ likes to say incrementalism is not overnightism. Right, that's true. Uh, but the question I ask is that if we really believe, I mean, we say, for instance, if we saw a, 
a, a, a, a, a man um, molesting or strangling a child in the city park. Um, we would we would engage that individual physically to stop them. And so, to the extent that we don't do that, how do we how do we justify not doing that? How do we not justify using violence? I didn't say violence, but using by using force. The answer that I would give to that is that um, you know when Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, he suffered the worst injustice, the worst um, form of death, and worst shame that any person's ever suffered. He has called us to do likewise. When we use force, uh, we are not representing the gospel in the way that the church is supposed to represent the gospel. And under the authority of a civil magistrate, someone could use force. But it becomes dangerous because you get into the area of vigilantism. Now, what is to stop me from deciding that, well, this ought to be a law, therefore I can take matters into my own hand and stop it. You know, it's, it's, there's, a coven, there's a covenantal view of the law that I think that would preclude a person acting on their own and using force. Now, there's all kinds of, there's also, there's thousands of other things you can do to end abortion short of, of stopping force. And, you know, there's the wisdom factor as well and so on. I don't, I mean, we could do a whole hour on this topic. I've written on it before. But, mm-hmm. you know, I'd like to give a, I know the abolitionists are, are against violence as well, so I'd like to hear about that. So. And, and I'm not, and I'm not, and I'm not, and I'm not supporting or endorsing it, but I, I think of the, uh, I think of, um, Obviously, and again, we're not we're not organized as a theocracy with God as the direct head of our of our civil government, like the nation of Israel. Uh, and so, I'm not I'm not calling for a, a holy war crusade. But I do re- re- seem to remember Jesus saying something about and violent men take the kingdom by force. Now, depending on your exegesis, that can be a pejorative. Or that can be uh, a positive. Uh, I probably just beyond the scope of this podcast to discuss which that is, unless you want to, you know, do a thirty-second your view on it. But the, the point I'm getting at is that if, if it's it, it, because it really is murder and murder on a wholesale level, on a genocidal level. I'm not saying that we do harm to anyone, but I wrote the other day about the uptick in chemical abortions. The pharmaceutical industry has money to burn, and uh, far better financed, is far more deeply entrenched in the American psyche than even, uh, you know, direct chemical and our surgical abortions. So even if we were, I could see, I could foresee that even if uh, magistrates were just virtually shamed and it disgraced into vote, voting for abolitionist bills and ending surgical abortion centers. It would be it would it would be a magnitude more difficult to ever get abortifacients off the shelves of America. Well, it's the whole darkness hiding in the crack in the corners kind of concept. What we have now is a very brutal, very kind of obviously evil act in, in, in a surgical abortion. And you can hold the graphic images and you can make the, the meanings of graphic images. And those are things that I, I do and I support. Um, however, when you're dealing with chemical abortions or even abortifacient drugs that could kill an unborn child pre-implantation, 
that's not going to have the same sort of obviously gruesome effect. And so it just becomes harder because we are desensitized and we, are, we dehumanize those individuals that don't look like us, that we can't sympathize with. And some, someone who's that tiny, that small, it's hard for us to really sympathize with them. So it'll only get harder. So that's why it's so vital to focus on changing the culture uh, alongside with changing the laws. And, that, and that's, in essence, why I'm not going to be in favor of most of the, uh, you would say, like the violent methods and tactics. And I think what Jay said was good. I don't think it's a good witness to be a lone gunman out for Jesus working against uh, the laws of the land, but also just working on his own. I think that any time you use force or violence or any way which we talk about it, it needs to be either a form of justice or a form of interposition. It needs to be one of those two things. And I don't think it's justice when you're a lone gunman. Now, I don't think you have to be an official state representative. I don't think you have to be in a, a state government. Or, sorry, I'm sorry, a state official or employee to legitimately um, deal out justice, but a lone gunman is not doing that. Would you say, having been really at the center of things in Operation Rescue, that it was kind of like a uh, it was like a Gettysburg in the sense that if a few other things had fallen differently, uh, rescue might have actually been successful overall. Well, it, I mean, successful in that. Abortion was not ended in America. Is that what you're what you're right. saying? Do you, do, you, do you feel like it had a, it actually had the the, the potential? Had uh, I know I talked to Joseph Foreman talking about you know how some of the major uh, media uh, personalities and uh, Christian media personalities opted to to not throw their hat in the ring, and because of that, a lot of mainstream denominations just basically set it out. But was it was it that was it that close? Had things gone a few other things, or were they were they almost were they close to tipping the scale where they could have had a sea change effect on America? Do you think at that time? I I mean, you're asking a question that's impossible to answer because I can't go back in time and say if this had been different, what would have happened? What I can tell you is that the entire time that we were doing this, it was a period of about five or six years. It wasn't that long. It was maybe 87 through 93, something like that. I think that's five or six years. Um, the entire time, the media and the liberals and the pro-aborts were saying, this is ineffective. And they were saying things like, you know, this is, they were talking about how ineffective it was. Um, when Wichita happened, there were something like 30,000 people at a rally for Operation Rescue. And it was covered by all the major news outlets uh, that, you know, the abortion laws in the city were shut down for over a month. And then after that event, they would say, well, you're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> that was what they used to say. There's a book written by a guy named uh, Thomas, Thomas Frank, and it's called What's the Matter with Kansas? It's also a documentary, and it talks about how Operation Rescue came to Wichita and it changed the political landscape of Kansas. There was a guy that stood outside the rally and signed people up to be Republican precinct captains, and they they flipped the state from being a blue state to a red state. Now, that didn't end abortion. Um, there's another book called Rapid Angels that says basically the same thing. It says that uh, Randall Terry's brand of evangelicalism, which blended Reconstructionism and pro-life activism together, 
ended up changing the Christian right, and it revived the Christian right, and basically documents that. So, you know, I don't, I'm not a big fan of the Christian right. I'm not trying to say that that's the answer, but, I mean, Operation Rescue did change America as far as getting, getting – there are lots of people that got involved in areas, cultural areas, that they were not involved with before because they did one rescue. You know, and that's, that, that to me is what needs to continue. Um, that's what I think that rescue was after. I, I don't think that it has to be rescue necessarily. It could be anything. But it's just, you know, you need to come out and see what happens when innocent blood is being shed. And, you know, be the church. Be the church there. Be a witness. And let God break your heart. And if you do that, then God will use you. I, I mean, I can't. I has been around for at least 5,000 years. And we're making progress in ending it in the Christian era. I'm a post-millennialist. I believe that we are going to end abortion. Uh, it might be in my lifetime. I hope it is in my lifetime. I hope to see it. But I know that doing the things that we are doing have been effective in the past. They'll continue to be effective. We're not like you know, I, one of the things I like about the abolitionist movement is they understand historical continuity. You know, with the abolition of slavery and so on. We're not just fighting abortion, we're fighting injustice. And we're, you know, we're going after, we are the, we are the seed of the woman planted in the foundation of the seed of the serpent. And eventually that foundation will break up and crumble and the kingdom of God will be planted. Jay, would you say that uh, the people today that are involved are more theologically sophisticated, more uh, uh, self-consciously Reconstruction is more focused on ethical judicial uh, considerations than were the the Christian population in the, in the 80s during rescue. I would say this, not all, but I would say a large number of people that I know personally that were involved with Operation Rescue have swung toward you know some type of reform theology. Uh, in many cases, Reconstructionism. Um, certainly many of them realize that it's pointless to be against abortion if you think you're going to lose. You know, what are we doing trying to end abortion if the Antichrist is coming? You know, so they've become post-millennialists as well. They've, they've searched for a theological grid to, to make sense out of their activism. So that's, I've, I've seen that happen. I don't want to say universally, but I've seen that happen with a large number of people that got involved with just coming out to the sidewalk and interposing. Uh, John, you've uh, you, you know that Russell has uh, done his whiteboard drawings uh, outlining his post-millennial position, and you're in contact you're in contact with a wide range of abolitionists all over the United States. Uh, you, you're 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 an active participant in many of the initiatives and and you're behind the scenes and and some of the strategizing and 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 papers position papers and um what do you make of the fact that uh there i know there's recently i've, I've commented several times and i think one of the healthiest uh influxes of, of uh, infusions of, of energy uh for christian reconstruction has been the abolitionists uh what is your you want to just give an overall comment on question on 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 uh, what you're what you're seeing among uh, the modern 
uh, variety of, of abolitionists as in terms of their uh, attitude towards the theonomy, the law of God, and its applicability, sure. and, and post-millennialism, yeah. and even Reformed theology. Because I, I, I've met many that, you know, it, it seems like they're they're almost theonomists before they're Calvinists. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes people get to it in a roundabout way, but I think... I think that was me for about 10 years, yeah. by the way. <laughs> yeah. So I, um, I do think they are closely connected, and I don't think you have to be a theonomist or a Christian reconstructionist uh, to be an abolitionist. And I, and I think that's intentional. We want abolitionism to be a movement of the church while at the same time uh, trying to teach and uh, sort of doing the best we can just with persuasiveness and with writing and with speaking to teach sound theology and a optimistic worldview where we, we actually believe that Christ is king and Christ's gospel will uh, sustain what we're doing if we're faithful and ultimately lead to the abolition of abortion. But, um, you know, Russell and some of the other uh, men that came out of Mormon who sort of reinvigorated the abolitionist movement they were deeply influenced by, by men like Francis Schaeffer, who we know was deeply influenced by R.J. Rushduni. So a lot of what went into abolitionism was almost Shakespearean in some ways, and then over the years has become even more uh, influenced by Reconstructionist thinkers. So I think that it is a, uh, a match made in heaven, if you will, Reconstructionism and abolitionism. Uh, I, um, I've been a Reconstructionist longer than I've been an abolitionist. So whenever I initially started researching abolition, I was like, oh yeah, well this makes sense. This puts some tires to my reconstructionist engine, if you will. Like this really gives me an outlet to do what I've been thinking about, do what I've been writing about, uh, do what I've been reading about. And that's been very helpful to me to see what this actually looks like on the ground floor. And we could use similar tactics and strategies in the future having to do with public education or the justice system or the prison system or health care, you know, fill in the blank. Yeah, I would like to talk to you a little bit, but I'd like to, talk, to get both you weigh in a little bit on the, What's going on right now within the education system, and if that, and I, and I like the name Operation Frontlines because, uh, as several have mentioned, that the, uh, I think it was probably, I think it was Matt Tringali said that no, no, the the abortion mill is the is the final line, the front line is the schools, and uh, and and I and and I recently interviewed uh, Jeremy Walker who has nine. Uh, I call them theonomic preschools in Florida, in Western Florida, where they teach the law of God to very, very young children who are not from Christian families. And, it, and I wondered if, you know, if the law of God is taught to the ne- to the next generation, isn't it almost inevitable that? I'm, well, I say I don't want to say inevitable. It's too strong a word, but but it does seem that that it's a that. I mean, even if you can, even if, as we see from the history of Israel, you know, you have one generation. Okay, you've got Hezekiah or Josiah is king, and the nation, uh, it, you know, is, experiences relative orthodoxy and an overthrow of or cessation of idolatry. But the next king, he goes the other way, and then they slip right back into the same into the same morass. So, but it does seem that <clears throat> that education, not just at the high school level, obviously these are the kids that are 
fornicating and are, are, are going to become the customers for uh, for abortions. Uh, but man, to really educate to get not the message of abortion necessarily uh, to the young, young, young children, because obviously then you, you're fighting irate fathers who want to come out and, with a ball bat because you're exposing their children to things that they should only see on TV. Uh, but but uh, but it does seem like if you could reach children, a generation of children in that preschool or five and under or six and under age range, that in a couple of generations you would have you would have produced the kind of conditions, uh, you know, reflecting on Henry Henry Van Til's comment that you know culture is just religion externalized anyway. So if you if you if you've seeded an entire generation from a very early age with the law of God, would not you create what Gary North talks about being the number one and, and what abolitionists uh, uh, echo is that the big problem is a worldview that even makes abortion thinkable. Wouldn't that be what's next, what's going to be needed anyway is a seed change in the culture? Yes, absolutely. I think that has to be uh, the primary goal is to shift in culture by the means of the gospel, by teaching the law of God. Um, that doesn't mean that's divorced from proper laws as well in the civil realm, but I think they should work together. Um, we are always going to have a supply for what the, the market demands to use for its cold economic terms. So what we want to do is to attack the, the demand for murder, and that would be the sinfulness of man's heart. And, um, you know, we, we talked about this earlier, you know, when you have abortions available by a pill, well, we know how much drug prohibition has worked. Not, not at all. So if we deem to actually abolish abortion in a legal sense, but also in the sense that it just no longer happens with any widespread method, then we actually have to address the heart of man, not just uh, laws. And I think we need to be doing both of those all the time. I want to ask you both, Dwayne, on this topic. When you run, a, when you meet a, a man who is uh, orthodox, he may not be a Reconstructionist, but he is you know, he, he is orthodox in the sense that he's not a heretic. He understands, you know, basic cardinal doctrines of Christian faith, and he he's solid on those. Do you, do you feel? I like you both to weigh in, if you would. Is there a linchpin? Is there an Achilles heel? Is there a juggler vein? That if you can, that you feel in your dealings with people and you're trying to persuade them uh, that, uh, that they ought to be involved in a greater extent, they'll be more militant uh, in, in, in combating abortion. Do you feel like there is some sort of a that that weak link, if you will, that if you can get them to think differently about that one thing, then you have a, a real good shot of a domino effect sort of happening in them uh, uh, thinking themselves or reasoning themselves into uh, uh, an attitude that would be more consistent with, let's say, a, a member of an abolitionist society. It, 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 have you found any particular – because people want to know how – we want to think actually how, how people are dealing – we have Reconstructionist, abolitionists who are in their congregations, and they're not being successful in, 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 in producing change or seeing change produced in leadership or uh, in, in trying to recruit others to 
their their cause. Do you think that there's as you dealt with? I believe that you can trace, um, you know, any number of social problems in America and the West, in particular, to the rejection of orthodoxy. I mean, you have you have the two different wings of the church that rejected orthodoxy with the liberals, and then the fundamentalists that did away with the creeds and the confessions because they saw dead orthodoxy among the liberals. That I believe is one of the big problems in the church. You have Christians who look at orthodoxy as something that is dead, and they don't really want to uh, have any part of it. They believe that study of theology is unspiritual, and they're very pietistic in their their thinking. Um, if you can basically... Now, I don't believe that everyone, just because they're Reformed, is like truly covenantal in their thinking. You know, many of them are Reformed out of tradition. Um, but I, I think that when you have... What I noticed in Rescue was that there are three groups, and this is true of, I think, any anti-abortion group. You have basically uh, three groups of people that gravitate towards activism. You have Roman Catholics, you have Pentecostal Charismatics, and you have Reformed. And each one of those groups comes at it from a different perspective. But the covenantal perspective is that the reason why abortion is to be resisted by the church it isn't just because it's murder. It's because we've, we've been created in the image of God. And then you go from there into um, human rights. Human rights need to be law-based. They're not things that the government gives to you and so on. Um, if you have a covenantal worldview, you have the idea that all government is under God. It's not just the church or just the individual, just the family, but it's all spheres of life are under God. If you can get someone thinking like that, then that's more than half the battle, I think. The friend of mine once, I said, why is it that every person that I know that's become a good friend of mine is either reformed or, you know, I have a lot of Catholic friends, too, that are not, they're not traditionally Roman Catholic, but they're, you know, they're, they're very, they're, they're pretty good, you know, pretty good people. So I asked them that. I said, well, what happens is, is once you become involved with, with a cause, you need something to make sense out of it all. And if you're a thinker, you need some you have to make sense of it. So Roman Catholic Roman Catholicism offers a systematic theology that makes sense of things. So does Reformed theology. That's the reason why those two groups are represented um, so much when you when you go out in front of the abortion bill. I believe that you know theology is hugely important. Um, at the very end of Operation Rescue, like when things were kind of winding down, they did these boot camps where they brought in Reformed theologians to teach. And, um, you know, basically they got they got activism in the afternoon, but they got biblical teaching in the morning. And, you know, that needs to happen. You know, we need to, we need to have both. We need to understand what orthodoxy is, but then we have to have some type of practical application of it. What do you think about the... Um the uh is there is do you foresee a merger or a re discovery of uh more of a Pentecostal influence in the reformed community that will also be vital in terms of sheer energy uh that that is needed to carry out a campaign like this? Well I think that you might see more continuationists but maybe not people from traditional Pentecostal backgrounds. 
I'll put it this way. I hope a lot of my reformed friends are influenced by some of my charismatic friends, and I hope all of my charismatic friends are influenced by my reformed friends, just in different ways. But um, to answer the previous question very, very shortly, I, mean, I, I think that oftentimes it just really depends on what individual you're talking to in regards to like, how you would want to influence them. I mean, oftentimes people will have a tough heart, and all they really need to do is to see what's going on. And maybe they don't have the theological foundations to justify, you know, a ideologically robust abolitionism, but they have a soft heart and they know they should do something. So that ideology can come later and you can teach them that. You can teach them why this is proper theologically. But I think a lot of times people think that, you know, theology and orthodoxy is dead because it is oftentimes. I don't think orthodoxy itself is dead, but I think the, the orthodoxy of the modern Reformed Church is very often dead, and we can see that by their fruit. Now, I think that's just apparent, though I, I don't want to pit orthodoxy against orthopraxy, because I think if someone truly believes correct doctrine, then their lives would be changed. The problem is that whenever you have a sociological system like just Calvinism, for example, and you're monergistic, but then you're also pessimistic eschatologically, I think that oftentimes does lead to inactivity. You can't, I think, wed a monergistic theology with pessimism and not get people just sitting around reading books. I think you see that again and again and again and again. So I think the optimism is extremely important, and to, to mirror a little bit what Jay said, just a holistic thorough, faith-for-all-life worldview where their faith has to do with everything, not just their Sunday mornings. Yeah, I think if you're wanting to, uh, if your goal is to produce a militant Christianity, I think it's much better if you're starting at the problem with from, from, a, from post-millennialism as your starting point than you are at Calvinism as your starting point. Because if you're, if you're, yeah, I mean, you're, you're reminded, you reminded me of a quote. Now, this was said years ago. This is not something new that people just, you know, thought, thought of recently. But I think as far back as like the mid 80s, Gary North, there's a quote by Gary North where he says, um, the growing alliance between charismatics and reconstructionists has caused critics to worry about the fact that the charismatic infantry is at last being armed with reconstructionism's field artillery. They should be worried. This represents one of the most fundamental realignments in U.S. Protestant church history. And I think that, you know, we haven't seen the end of that. Um, We've seen the beginning of it. You know, my own experience speaks of that. I came out of a charismatic background and got into more of a Reformed and Reconstructionist worldview because of my um, involvement with pro-life evangelism, just actually being out in front of the mill and having to make sense of it all. Right, so I so I think that that's true. When you have the wedding of charismatic zeal, but tied to Christian orthodoxy, finally you do have the tool of dominion. Um, so when the day comes, if the charismatic movement, you know, which I believe was blessed of God in the beginning, there's a lot of craziness in the charismatic movement. But if, if the charismatic movement got some Christian orthodoxy, you're going to see something in the earth that's going to cause people to look and listen. And it is happening all over the world. You know, you have to look outside of America. You see that I believe we're on the beginning edges of that. Um, I think it's going to work out, you know, it's going to work out over time. 
know, and, and it does seem to me that if you're going to expose that people are in the charismatic uh, part of the body, that they're much more susceptible to Christian Reconstructionists from the perspective of post-millennialism because they already have a uh, sort of a you know, very vibrant, aggressive exuberation about prom- the promises of God and claiming the word. And when you just expand their vocabulary of promises to claim, then, then it, you get into something that looks like dominion. And, and then, of course, when that stays wrapped in a, in a charismatic wrapper, then it takes on this seven hills look. But if you, but with the right mixture, it, it, it begins to bloom, it begins to grow Christ, real Christian reconstruction. Uh, which sees it from the bottom up and, you know, the way we would understand it. I, I wanted to, before we close, and, and, and we really do need to close, let you guys, I both I appreciate you both joining me on, on um, short notice and uh, always my, you know, my thanksgiving to the providence of God because he always uh, enables me to, to bring in some good brothers to talk with and hopefully the audience will take something away from this. We're not just wanting to be theoretical. I don't want to be theoretical. We've got other podcasts and venues for that sort of thing. And I want you both to get a chance to promote your blogs and or your Facebook groups, Jay, that you you moderate and and started. But I said I was going to ask you both this at one time, and hopefully this doesn't seem to be uh, unfair, but if if every American... Christian, we're listening to you. We're willing to listen to you and heed your advice. What would you say if someone says, how do we end abortion? Jay, how do we end abortion? There is an answer. Um, my pastor, Keith Fusey, used to say this all the time. He used to say that, um, you know, God has one plan for fulfilling the Great Commission. It's called the church, and there ain't no plan B. You know, one of the things that needs to happen is that um, Christians begin need to begin to see abortion as a gospel issue. This is we're not talking about anything different than fulfilling the Great Commission. We're making disciples of the nations. We're not making decisions of the nations. We're not asking people to um, say that Jesus loves them and offer them a smile and a prayer. We're asking them to become disciples. So that would be that would be the first thing is shifting from a Christianity that looks at only prayer and Bible reading, personal devotion to God, and evangelism in that sense, and more toward evangelism that includes the full counsel of the Word of God, and nation-changing, nation-building. Um, that's how we're on abortion. And the church is the institution that God has given to do that. Um, every individual plays their own role. We are the church. So the church was a giant the capital C. Then um, our local church is the place where we get equipped. I think too many times we look at the local church and say, well, the church isn't involved, the church isn't involved. But we're the church. Each one of us is individuals. So transformation begins individually and then works itself out through families, through churches, and then into society. John? Yeah, kind of a, that's not like a real, you know, that's, that's kind of like a big general answer, but that's, that's what has to happen, so. Right. Well, that yeah, one, I, I mean, that, that, that doesn't come as a surprise to many people that 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 uh, the Great Commission is 
that that the, that the end that the solution uh, the end of abortion has something to do with the fulfillment of the Great Commission. I, I agree with that. That doesn't that doesn't really surprise anybody. I, 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 but it does. They, they need to expand their definition of the Great Commission. I presume. Yeah, I think that's what I was getting at. Is it has to be a discipleship based. Um, it's not evangelism only, but it's the transformation of the you know total society. That's what Christian Reconstruction teaches, and so on. So. In, in, a, in a nation that practices wholesale child sacrifice, can he be, can a person lay claim to being a disciple of Jesus Christ and be essentially uninvolved in this fight? People aren't involved for many reasons. And I think one of the jobs of the abolitionists is to expose those reasons and to leave them with no excuse. Because oftentimes I do think that the people who are completely uninvolved uh, are completely misinformed on their own duty before God. And that doesn't leave them with excuses necessarily. But I don't I don't think we can say that every last person who isn't involved isn't saved. I do think we know them by their fruit, however. And when someone is constantly exposed to this and yet they still turn around and do nothing and you know this individual and you have conversations with this individual and it's obvious that they're cold and apathetic towards it, but then you have to judge the fruits towards that individual. But I'm not in a place to, to judge everybody. No, I mean, I, listen, I, know, I, I know some very, I mean, some really kingdom-driven, Christ-centered people who are involved in other ministries, and while they're not unsympathetic, they're, they're not physically involved or financially invested in the fight to, to abolish abortion that, that's true and, and 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 when you talk to them they 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 give a sense to everything you say uh it's just that they in it within their within their the time and the resources the energy and the talents that they have they just are already invested and, and we have to we have to allow i think we have to allow for that but I wanted to ask you, uh, John, what, again, the, the earlier question, and then I'll give you both a chance to plug your blogs and your websites and anything you, that you want to direct our attention to. And that is, uh, if you were, if you were gonna, if America's Christians were listening to John Andrew Reasoner and were willing to do whatever you said, and they said, John, how do we end abortion in America? Well, I think one thing that, that Jay said that I agree with is, is that it has to be by the church, meaning that the, the bride ecle- of Christ, the ecclesia, right, the bride of Christ, the the assembly of all the saints, and, and I think if I were to say one thing that I believe is the core of the reason why uh, abortion isn't fought and isn't abolished is because we don't understand it as a real heart issue. We don't think of a lack of uh, of care or an apathy towards abortion or uh, just a complete inactivity is actually a matter of repentance. It's actually a matter of sin. It's actually a matter of the heart. So when we talk about wanting to uh, get the churches involved, I don't want to necessarily talk about we just need to convince them to do more. We want to convince them to start their own special ministries. We don't want to convince them to give to a, a you know, a, a different ministry. We want their hearts to change. We want them to think rightly about this Holocaust. They need to understand that Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, was an abolitionist. He practiced interposition. That was his mission. He was the archetypical 
interposer. He interposed himself between us and the wrath of the Father and took the wrath of, of God. If we're to be like Christ, we have to be abolitionists. We have to be, we have to practice interposition. Oh, I completely agree. And, and just, you know, for the naysayers and the haters, I'm not saying you have to wear a, the AHA symbol to be a Christian. Um, but I do think you do have to have a heart for justice in the weightier matters of the law. And that's just basic Christianity. That is just simply pure and undefiled religion before God the Father. It, it's not anything special. So whenever I talk about what I would want to tell the church is to understand that this is not about just checking off the pro-life boxes or even the abolitionist activism boxes. It's about actually thinking and feeling right about what's going on and like truly feeling the sense of duty to interpose with, with the gospel of Jesus Christ or maybe someday with their bodies. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. But actually thinking about it in, in the realm of repentance and thinking rightly, not just doing more. And I think people will do more when their hearts are, are made pure and when their hearts are uh, in line with what the gospel says and what the reality of our situation is. One thing that I, I've often thought about, what I've said before, is that um, I'm talking to Reformed Christians who have good orth, uh, orthodoxy and good theology, maybe even Reconstructionists, and I ask them if, abolished, if, if abortion was abolished tomorrow, would their lives look any different? Like, does their Christian life look any different, whether or not they're in a Holocaust or whether or not they're living with justice? And I think even the most orthodox Christians and many Reconstructionists, many good people I know and love, their lives wouldn't look any different. Well, that's a good question. That's a convicting question, too. Uh, John, you wanted to give us your uh, blog information and how people can follow you? Sure. Um, I blog at kingdomandabolition.com. It's just kingdomandabolition.com. I blog on all sorts of things, uh, the kingdom of God, ecclesiology, uh, abolition. And uh, there's also a Facebook page, it's kingdomandabolition.com, and I also would encourage everyone to go and research abolitionism at abolishhumanabortion.com. Okay, Jay? Uh, you want to tell us about uh, your your presence on the internet and uh, uh, anything else you've got going on? Any other projects? Yeah, um, forerunner.com. Forerunner as in Jesus is our forerunner. F O R E R U N N E R. And I have the article um, in response to Operation Save America's rescue in Kentucky that's on the front page. So if people want to read that, I encourage you. Um, if you were to look at it. Uh, one Facebook page that I think is valuable, one of the ones I moderate, Post-Millennialism and Eschatology of Victory. And we have about 2,000 members who are generally well-behaved there. And um, there's a growing number of post-millennialists in the world. I believe that eventually everyone will be a post-millennialist, you know. Um, so as a post-millennialist, I have to believe that. So it's post-millennialism and eschatology of victory on Facebook. You can just search that. Uh, we get new members every day. So we'll welcome you if you join. All right. Thank you, brothers, both for joining us. And, folks, thank you for joining us tonight on The War Room. Thank you for joining us in The War Room. Please enjoy The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2, by my soul among lions. Why do the nations rage?